This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Vacation alert from the three-row Jeep Grand Cherokee L. Mama and Papa want to go hiking. Los abuelos want to relax at the beach. And the kids want to go to the amusement park. With seating for up to seven, you and your loved ones can enjoy all these adventures and more. Jeep. There's only one. Visit jeep.com to learn more. Jeep is a registered trademark of FCA US LLC. CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF protect skin against damaging UV rays and continuously deliver three essential ceramides to help restore skin's protective barrier so it can lock in moisture. Non-greasy, fragrance-free, and won't clog pores? With CeraVe, skin feels hydrated and looks healthy all day. CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF from the number one dermatologist-recommended facial moisturizer brand. Even in the last few months, there have been some studies on this idea and asking runners to smile while they're running, and it seems to increase their efficiency by about 2%. So they burn 2% less energy to maintain the same pace through some combination of probably you know, relaxing muscles. But just the, the act of smiling seems to help change how your brain interprets those signals from the rest of your body. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling Science and Technology Monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello and welcome to the Science Focus podcast. I'm Jason Goodger, Commissioning Editor of BBC Focus magazine. This weekend, more than 40,000 runners will take to the streets of the capital to compete in one of the most prestigious and iconic events in the sporting calendar the London Marathon. After months of training, these runners will feel like they've pushed their bodies to the very limit. But as Alex Hutchinson discovers in his new book, Endure, the human body is capable of significantly more than we can imagine, even after a gruelling 26.2-mile run through the cobbled streets of London. He talks to sciencefocus.com editor Alexander McNamara about what happens in the body when you're endurance running, whether we humans can ever run a marathon in under two hours, and how smiling while you run can improve your race times. So I guess I would call myself a science journalist these days. You can narrow it down. I'm a, a, a science endurance journalist or a sports endurance science journalist because I've been writing for the last 10 years or so about uh the, the science of endurance, not so much who is winning and losing races, but but why they do and what are the limits that athletes face and, and that we all face. Um and so my background is that I, I actually started out 
I was a physicist originally. I did I did a PhD and some postdoctoral work in physics, and I was also a, a distance runner. So I was I was competing for the Canadian national team as a as a middle and long distance runner, and so. I think the question that a lot of athletes face when, as it comes time to walk away from the sport or to move on is, is, you know, did I go as fast as I possibly could? Was I, was I anywhere near my, my physical limits? And so that, that sort of lingering question uh, stuck with me for a long time and informed a lot of my reporting and eventually was the seed for this book to try and understand what are the limits of endurance and, and how close was I to them? And over the course of reporting the book, it's, which is sort of nine years or so, my exploration of endurance got a lot broader. It's not just about, uh, you know, could I have run a faster 1500 meter race uh, endurance? I ended up defining it as the struggle to continue against a mounting desire to stop. And that that applies, you know, as much while you're doing your taxes or, or at work as it does in a marathon. But it's it, it all started with that sort of interest as a runner. So, so that's the sort of the, the seed of where it comes from. But um, so, can you sort of explain to us what what is happening to our bodies when we when we run, just as a, a sort of basic, you know, physiological level? Yeah, well, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of things that are that are going on that all sort of integrate into that feeling of boy, I'd like to stop. One of the key challenges for for running of any duration longer than you know a minute is that your most efficient source of fuel uh, relies on oxygen, and so you're struggling to get enough oxygen to your uh, to your muscles. So you're panting in air, uh, and that that oxygen is getting transferred to your bloodstream, and your heart is pumping as hard as it can to pump oxygen-rich blood to your muscles, and your muscles are then trying to extract it to help provide the fuel they need. But in doing so, uh, if you're running hard enough, you're, you're also the, the the metabolic byproducts of of providing fuel to your muscle are starting to accumulate in your bloodstream. And we we often hear about lactic acid. And I, I spent quite a bit of time in the book looking into the origins of the belief that lactic acid kind of burns our muscles. And it's not it's not quite true, but there's a kernel of truth in it, in that the metabolic byproducts like lactate and protons and other th- and you know changes in pH levels in your blood. They don't directly, you know, consume your muscles, but they send signals back to your brain that that make it very uncomfortable and that make you want to slow down. So there's a supply and a demand part that your muscles are trying to get enough oxygen, and you're also getting these byproducts that are accumulating and sort of poisoning your your blood. And all of these things, along with changes in your body temperature and decreases in your the fuel stores in your muscle, especially if you're running a full marathon, you're starting to run out of fuel and your muscles are actually getting damaged if you're running. You're pushing off, but you're also breaking every time you land. And those landings do a little bit of damage to your muscles. Just It's, it's particularly pronounced running downhill, but even just running a marathon, you'll have muscle damage. And and all these things are sending signals back to your brain, which your brain is then integrating into a, a signal that says, you really should stop and we're going to make this very uncomfortable for you if you don't obey our uh, obey the, the, the message to stop. So what's happening, it's sort of like your muscles are, are getting to a point where they your brain wants to stop. Is it to protect the muscles uh, from further damage or is it just, I, I can't take it anymore? Well, this is a an area of vigorous debate among physiologists to this day. Um, I think what's clear is that, you know, if, if, if you step out the door and, and just start sprinting down the street as hard as you can, you're not going to reach a point where your muscles have truly 
uh, it's very difficult to, to or if not impossible, to, to run yourself to a complete stop. So, you, and the, the sort of classic example of this is you watch the Olympic marathon or the London marathon for that matter, you'll watch and, and there's every incentive in the, in the form of hundreds of thousands of pounds to win that race. And if you're in second in that race, and particularly if you're in second, just like a couple of seconds behind the leader, you're pushing as hard as you can. You, you're leaving nothing in the tank. And then you cross the finish line and you watch these guys and they, you know, they take a deep breath and then they jog off, you know, they're, they're, they're still moving. So their muscles are still capable of moving. And, and the, the, you know, the, the other way of putting it is if at the 24 mile mark or the, the 38 K mark of a marathon, you were to release a lion onto the course and have it start chasing people, you discover that these people can still sprint. So it, it's not a question of your muscles reaching an absolute limit, despite what it feels like. It's not that your muscles can't go, it's your brain deciding that your muscles shouldn't go any farther in order to avoid the risk of danger. And the, the general, although there's, again, there's lots of debate, the general thinking is that this is some sort of evolutionary driven behavior that prevents us from either doing serious damage to ourselves or just misjudging the balance between, you know, foraging for more food versus getting back to the, the campsite. So that's you know you you mentioned the the balance there. At what point uh, is the the importance of the what the brain is doing and what the muscles are doing? Like at what point does it the, the tables turn as if it were? Well, you know, it depends on the context, and there's always stories of in in, in many contexts of of you know your child is trapped under a car and you suddenly find you have superhuman strength that you can lift the car off the child. Whether whether this is is true or not is is debatable. Um, but you know, I was speaking to a pain researcher at McGill University about you know how do athletes do these you know ridiculous things where they'll they'll compete through a, you know a broken limb or something like that and he said well look back evolutionarily or, or even to the to the animal kingdom if if you're a deer and you you know trip and break your leg and a, well a wolf is chasing you you can't say whoa whoa, whoa time out you know I, I need to take a, a day to recover and then we can resume this chase you have to just keep running and so the brain has has caution but you also have to have ways of overriding the brain's caution in particularly important circumstances and uh you know in some cases depending on your your, your mental state of mind running the london marathon is uh it can be a, a sort of faint echo of being chased by a wolf if, if you can get into the right mindset or um, someone dressed up in a rhino costume. Yeah, well, if those rhinos charge, you got to be careful. So you know, watch for the fancy dress people. <laughs> um, so with that, 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 that's sort of in mind. Is there sort of a, a, a physical um, point that maximum that we can reach physically with like muscles and training, and then we have to work on our brain to be able to take us that extra bit further? So I would almost put it the other way around that there there is. In 99% of circumstances, and I can talk about some of the exceptions, but in most cases, there is no physical point that we reach that is like, yes, you've done, uh, you've done everything you can, and now it's the job of the brain to push you further. It's kind of the other way around. You have a large physical capacity, and you'll never approach the limits of it, and it's your brain that's always making the decision about how prematurely to to stop you, and you know, what athletes learn over time, but I, what I think that we're learning more and more about is that there are ways you can manipulate or alter how early the brain applies the brakes. So I, I know for me as an, as an athlete, it always felt like I could go as hard as I could, and that was my physical limit. And then on really special days, I could transcend my physical limits. But I, I, I now sort of view it the other way around, that I was never transcending my physical limits. I was just being allowed to approach them a, a little more closely. So could that be the same for anyone? So I'm, I'm not a particularly good runner. Um, my times are 
uh, bad. Let's put it that way. Um, <laughs> would it would it be a case for me to say, okay, well, I to, to be able to train harder and to train better, I need to to work on that mental uh, brain part first. Yeah, I, th- I I think so. But I think also this is actually a, something that happens naturally too that w- we maybe don't think about as much. You know, if if you were to take someone who hasn't been running at all and say you should run a park run 5k in six months, get out there and and start trying to run three times a week. And after six months, there's no doubt that there'd be a bunch of physical changes in their body. Their their hearts would be a little stronger and, and, you know, their muscles would be stronger and more efficient and so on. But there'd also be mental changes because they would have gradually learned the kind of the difference between the, the yellow light of caution and the red light of, of actual reaching a limit. We, 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 when someone starts running for the first time, they head out there and they're panting and this feels like a, a, an absolute, you know, a, a real serious problem that they're out of oxygen and their legs are starting to hurt. And what they gradually learn is that that feeling of panic and and that feeling of being out of breath and of legs feeling like cement, that's okay. That's that's not a sign that your heart's about to explode or your legs are about to fall off. That's just a, a warning sign saying that you can't uh, continue that pace forever and you can ignore it up to a point. And so there's plenty of research showing that we do learn to tolerate greater levels of discomfort over time. And there's great pain research on athletes. And if you compare athletes and non-athletes, uh, they have roughly the same pain sensitivity. So there's no there's no immunity to the idea of pain. If you pinch an athlete, they'll, they'll squirm as much as a non-athlete. But if you keep ramping up the pain signal, the athlete will be willing to tolerate more. And again, that's not because they're not feeling the pain, but, but it's because thanks to repeated exposure every day with discomfort, they've learned psychological coping techniques, uh, things like being able to distract themselves from the pain or reframing the pain so that it's more emotionally neutral. They're not panicking. It's just information. And that allows them to deal with the pain better. So it is something we work on naturally just by going through the process of physical training, but it's also something that we can work on directly and explicitly. And, and that I think uh, top athletes, almost without exception, do you know, do work on that deliberately to to get better at it. So when I watch marathon runners or when I watch any sort of long distance, they, they sort of look as if while they're going through it there, it's almost effortless for them. And when they cross the line, then it seems like they, there's this huge, great big relief that they have on them. Is that just them letting their minds sort of welcome the pain as it were, or just say, okay, you can have your moment. Yeah, I think you know. I mean, I think that there's a great diversity of tactics that that, they, that can be used. But I think it's really interesting to watch, say, Elliot Kipchoge, uh, who's the Olympic champion, and and uh, he won London two years ago, and and will be there again this year. He deliberately smiles every say five minutes or so, especially in the last half of a race. And w- when it's getting most painful, he's got a big grin plastered on on his face over every few minutes, and. When you ask him about it, he, he says, well, look, I'm, I'm running with my mind as much as with my legs. And so it's important to remind myself that it's fun and to try and convince my legs that it's okay. And, you know, that sounds sort of, uh, that's the kind of thing that uh, my, my tendency as a skeptic is to sort of s- smile and nod and, and, and dismiss it. But actually, even in the last few months, there've been some studies on this idea and asking runners to smile while they're, while they're running. And it, it seems to increase their efficiency by about 2%. So they burn 2% less energy to maintain the same pace. Through some combination of of probably, uh, you know, relaxing muscles and, but it also changes just the, the act of smiling helps, it seems to help change how your brain interprets those signals from the rest of your body so that the, you know, the, the distress signals from your muscles no longer seem quite so threatening if you've got this idea that everything's okay and you're, you're, you're tricking yourself into thinking that everything's fine. 
So I, I, I now have the idea of just doing a run and then just sort of saying to myself halfway through, I'm enjoying this more than I probably really am, uh, just to give myself that extra boost. Exactly. And, and you know, look, I, when I was in university 20 years ago, we had a sports psychologist who who gave us sort of roughly that advice, gave us all these techniques for negative thought stopping. And we thought this was just the most terrific joke. We, we thought it was hilarious. And, and we laughed and laughed at what a silly thing she was doing, because we knew that to be the fastest possible, we just had to maximize our VO2 max and improve our lactate threshold. And one of the things that I've come away with after you know, a decade of, of looking into this stuff and looking into the research is that, boy, I, I wish I had a time machine and I could go back and say, hey, Alex, you know, take this stuff seriously, because it turns out as sort of ridiculous and abstract as it sounds, there's there's pretty good laboratory based evidence that changing your internal monologue makes a difference. And, and so if you learn to replace the negative thoughts like, oh, this this really hurts, I can't do this, I'm going to have to stop with I've trained for this, I'm ready for this. Well, there's been studies that show that, okay, first of all, yes, you you improve your performance, you, you enhance your endurance, which sounds like a big placebo effect. But they've also found that a couple of weeks of self-talk training then allows you to, for example, increase your the level that your core temperature re- reaches by about half a degree if you're doing exercise in hot conditions. So, so it really is enabling you to dig deeper into your physiological reserve. So, um, so, so exactly what you said, you know, if you can convince yourself that, that you're actually enjoying yourself, even if you're, it seems like you're maybe deceiving yourself, um, if, if, if you can convince yourself, your mind to follow, then, uh, then there's some benefits there. I mean, it sort of sounds like, um, with this physical capability that we have of endurance, um, and then there's the part of your brain, which is sort of saying, just, you know, keep going the smile. It sounds like there's a, a sort of balance between the effort. So you say, I can't be bothered to do this anymore. And actually that's having a, a, a very real impact on your actual endurance. Yeah, well, there's, so there's, I would say that there's, there's a, a growing agreement that the perception of effort, your subjective sense of how hard this is to continue, uh, really is fundamentally what determines whether you're able to continue. Now, of course, your sense of how hard it is is affected by how tired your muscles are and how hard you're breathing. But it really is... Uh, if you if you if you make that sort of semantic switch that it's not your muscles and your breathing that are stopping you they're just affecting your effort and your effort is what determines whether you go or stop then what you realize is that there are other ways of influencing your effort like thinking positive thoughts or or you know or taking a cup of coffee for example that change your perception of effort and can allow you to go farther without any change in what your muscles or your legs or your heart are doing so so that this subjective sense of effort which just seems like an abstract concept turns out to be a really powerful construct i'm just imagining now that every time i sort of get myself into a bit of a fog, I'll just go, I'll just have a nice cup of tea um, <laughs> just to sort of help myself through. Yeah, well, there's, you know, look, it's no coincidence that whatever the, the stats are, 90, 90% of people uh, drink coffee or tea. Um, and and there's been lots of debate over the years. Is why, why does caffeine have such powerful and, and ubiquitous performance effects? And there have been theories about how it allows you to burn your fat stores more effectively or it changes the contractile properties of your muscles. But the newer view is that it's it's actually, a, it, it plays a role in affecting how certain neurotransmitters in your brain uh, function and it, it counteracts mental fatigue. And so the idea here is, you know, in a marathon, of course, you've got physical fatigue, but it's also hard to 
summon the effort to keep pushing through, to 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 push through the, the, uh, the to struggle to continue against a mounting desire to stop. And and again, that's that's in, whether it's in a marathon or in a you know a long meeting at work or in other contexts. And so caffeine is directly affecting uh, your mind's ability to kind of hold your finger in the flame. So, you know, taking caffeine, for example, that's um, affecting your, the way your mind works. Is there anything else there that can do that? So obviously there's always uh, doping scandals and that sort of thing, which are using uh, untoward methods to sort of change you physically and to be able to... Is there something like that that's out there that's, that's doing the, the same job but mental, uh, with your mental endurance? Yeah, there are a few different approaches uh, of which I have uh, varying opinions. So the one that sort of uh, is, is maybe the best analogy to, to, to doping and, and, and that, that is the, maybe the most spectacular demonstration that the brain really does affect your limits is electric brain stimulation. Um, there's a technique called transcranial direct current stimula- stimulation, which is it's gotten a you know there's been a, a whole bunch of research over the last five or ten years and it's it's fairly controversial because a lot of the research has gotten overhyped but there's pretty reliable evidence now that if you so this is basically you take a, a you know a nine volt battery and and two wires and connect some electrodes to your brain and run a very weak current uh, that that just changes the sensitivity of the neurons uh, in whatever region of the brain you target. You can alter your perception of effort. You can also you can al- directly alter how hard a given physical effort feels without changing anything in your muscles, and so that allows you to enhance your endurance. Uh, and this is out in the world now. There's a Silicon Valley startup company that sells the sells headphones that purport to to offer this technology. And there are athletes at the Winter Olympics who are, who use this, uh, and there are endurance athletes of other you know at the World. Uh, Ironman triathlon championships. There were athletes using this technique. So, uh, th- from a scientific perspective, I think that's that's really really interesting that you can alter someone's limits just by you know running su- some some gentle voltage through their brain. From a sporting perspective, I think that that raises all sorts of questions about wh- what roads we want to travel down and in in pursuit of uh, marginal gains, as it were. Um, so that that's one example. There are some more. Um, I don't know how to put it. There, there's some methods that are of of trying to train your brain, which aren't so much don't seem don't seem quite so much like a shortcut. Where you're deliberately, so you can think of like there's there's the very famous marshmallow test where a Stanford psychologist had four year olds say here you can have one marshmallow now, or if you wait for an undetermined amount of time, you you can have two marshmallows. And so this you have to inhibit your initial response, which is to eat the marshmallow. And that's kind of a, a a way of thinking about endurance performance too. To run a marathon, you have to, for three or four or however many hours, inhibit your, your natural and, you know, very well justified response, which is to want to slow down. And so the trait of response inhibition is a very key cognitive trait. And so if you sit at a computer and do a bunch of cognitive tasks, you know, tapping buttons, depending on which uh, letters and numbers and arrows flash on a screen, that you, that you can design those tasks to specifically tax your response inhibition. And if you do that for, say, an hour a day, five days a week for 12 weeks, the theory is you should be able to enhance, to, to cause changes in your brain that improve your response inhibition 
and consequently make you a better marathon runner without ever having stepped away from your computer. And so that's being that's there's some research on that that's been funded by the British Ministry of Defense being done at the University of Kent and it's now been replicated at the University of Birmingham which seems to have pretty powerful effects. I have tried it and I can say it's really boring and I wouldn't I wouldn't wish it on my my worst enemy, but if if you're looking for that last 1% that that seems to be a a, poten- a potential route. That sort of method uh, is a very outside in way of improving it, these very marginal gains. Are there anything that's, that can be done which is, let's say, more within the sort of field of running? So obviously people run with other people. Um, is that is that going to make you a better runner and work on your brain better than just running solo? So the, the group effect is really fascinating and, and the idea that you can uh, get more out of yourself when you're when you're running with, say, training partners. There's some uh, there's been some really amazing work at the University of Oxford uh, looking with their rowers saying, OK, we know that exercise increases your pain tolerance, presumably because it ramps up brain chemicals like endorphins. Um, so if, if you sit at your rowing machine and do a given workout, then, yes, we can measure an increase in pain tolerance. Now, if we get you and your teammates, the people with whom you've trained for for you know many months towards a common goal, and you all sit at your separate rowing machines and do exactly the same workout, you'll see a much bigger increase in pain tolerance. So there's something about the nature of doing something with other people, and you know, it's, it's something like the London Marathon, of course you have this massive sense of collective work towards a common goal. So I think that's one of the reasons that. Uh, People are able to achieve much more when they are in a context like like a race or working with teammates or training with teammates. Now, th- there are also all sorts of other things uh, benefits to training with other people. For instance, if you if you're with other people, then of course you have lots of people who are all working on making sure that the pace stays at at a, at a good level. For example, so if you've decided you want to run eight minute miles, you can, there's, you're less likely one person, their mind may, may sort of drift off their response inhibition may kind of fade for a bit. But if you've got three people running together, there's always someone who's going to notice if the pace is, is lagging and, and keep it down. So I do think there's, there's a lot of different ways that you can end up, uh, pushing yourself a little more when, when exercising with other people. Um, what about sort of uh, goal-orientated situations? So the obvious goal of running the Olympic marathon uh, is to to win gold. And does that do, do these goals change people's uh, something in them that change their ability to endure more? Yeah. So there was an interesting analysis a couple of years ago. Uh, you know, in this modern era, of course, we have you know race results, vast data, databases of race results uh, that exist online for, for the pleasure and an analysis of of, uh, of big data people. And so the, there was an analysis of about 9 million marathon finishers, finishers, I think it was, looking at the distribution of times. And what they found is, of course, yeah, it's sort of a, a, a bell curve. You know, there's a few people running very, very fast, a few people running very, very slow, and most people sort of in, in this broad area in the middle. But superimposed on this bell curve are these spikes and troughs. So at every hour barrier, you'd have a huge surge in the number of people who ran just below that hour barrier. So that ran, who ran 358 or 359 for the marathon. And then a, 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 a trough where there's not many people who ran four flat or 401 or 402. And then if you break it down, the same thing occurs at half hour barriers and even at 10 minute barriers. So you have this statistical over representation of people who manage to run, you know, 339 rather than 340. And 
what this tells us is that, first of all, that people are motivated by round numbers, which is which is no surprise. But it also tells us that, you know, if you were to ask someone at with a, with a couple miles to go in a marathon, are you running as hard as you can? Of course, they're going to say, yes, get away from me and don't stop talking to me. I'm going as hard as I can. How dare you suggest otherwise? But what they what, what you find is that when they get to the the final mile or the final kilometer and they realize, oh, I still have a shot of getting under that round number, they discover that they do have some physiological reserve left, that, that what felt to them like their absolute physical maximum was actually concealing some reserve that with sufficient motivation, with a goal that they consider worth chasing, they're able to access some of that physiological reserve. And so that that tells you that uh, first of all, that you weren't running at, you know, if if you're on pace for a 336, you will finish the race never having had a hint that you had that extra physiological reserve if it had been a round number you were going for. But it tells you that if you set the goal high enough, you are able to dig in. A, or if, if you have a, a goal that's meaningful to you, and if it's reasonable, you know, you can't just decide you want to uh, leap over, uh, you know, a tall building or something. But if you have a reasonable goal and you're within sight of it, you will be able to dig deeper into your uh, closer to your to your physical limits, and I think that's a, probably a, an extremely broad finding. It's it's demonstrated by this marathon data set, but yeah, the, of course, the more meaningful the goal is, and if it's within your reach, that's a key caveat. Then you'll be able to push a little closer to your limits. So, just on on that note, you've got the you know the thing that everyone is trying to strive for at the moment with the marathon is under two hours, um, and I think it was uh, Elip Kogé, wasn't it, uh, who who almost made it. Yeah, he ran. So this was part of Nike's uh, Breaking Two race, which was, uh, you know, an artificially constructed race at a Formula One track in Italy uh, last year with some some details like he had pacers that uh, allowed him to draft through the whole race because they were jumping in and out of the race, which is not permitted for world records. So this wasn't a world record, but he ran two flat uh, two two hours, zero minutes and 25 seconds, which is more than two and a half minutes faster than the, the current official world record. And, uh, yeah, you know, I think he was very, very motivated to get close to two hours. And I think he, he, uh, he would probably be the performance that I've witnessed where someone came as close as possible to pushing out their, their, their true physical limits. He didn't have a finishing kick. Unlike most people who are close to a, like, you know, you'd think, like I said, there, there'd be more people who would run 159 than two flat. He ran two flat and he didn't, wasn't able to accelerate even though history was within his grasp. And I think that's because he was so motivated by this goal that he was pushing right, you know, from very, very early. He was, he was leaving nothing, nothing in reserve. But I think the fact that he's done that performance now will, will help drag other people a little bit closer to that goal. It's still, all of this discussion of, of mental limits, uh, and the role of the brain in physical limits is, of course, secondary to the fact that physical constraints are real too. You know, I could have the strongest mind in the world, and I wouldn't run a, a, a you know, I wouldn't run a, a two ten marathon or a two twenty marathon. And similarly, for these even the greatest athletes in the world, they can have enormous self belief and the greatest mental skills in the world. But two hours for a marathon is is, is still a, a tremendous physical challenge. So I don't want to undersell that and say that oh, as long as they believe it, they'll be able to to get there. <laughs> uh, he's almost and that's that's the thing, isn't it? It's, so he's sort of he's sort of as far as with a very set mind goal, he's the sort of physically and probably mentally as close as we are at this point. Yeah, I mean, I think. 
there was plenty of of speculation and discussion leading up to that Nike race as to how, you know how close he and there were a couple other runners in the race how close they would come, and I don't think many knowledgeable observers thought he would you know get much get anywhere faster than two hundred one at best. Uh, it was really a um, now I was there in Italy watching the race and and there are some performances that just uh, you watch them and you think that was that was sort of history in the making and for for all the sort of controversy around the Nike race because it was basically a big marketing stunt it was a really transcendent performance and you you really had the sense that this was a guy who who kind of flew as close to the sun as it is possible at this point in our in our evolution he 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 left it all out there on the track. It's an amazing feat. Um, so just finally, um, is there something that we can do uh, with all of this information that you've you've discovered about our endurance that can make us better runners and not just runners, just going that little bit further? Yeah, so to go back to, to what I was saying earlier about self-talk, that's really what I uh, walked away from this with. It's because there are these other techniques that I talked about, like you, you, can, you can apply electricity to your brain if if that's your if that's your bag, uh, and 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 you can also spend hours in front of a computer clicking buttons, in search of a in search of a north sort of marginal gain. But in terms of the size of the advantage and the sort of applicability to other areas of life, and uh, and just the the reasonableness of the time investment and the effort investment, I think spending some time becoming aware of your of the thoughts that echo in your head during times of stress, whether it's a race or whether it's in, in other contexts of life, listen to that voice and understand what it is you're telling yourself and because the, the, those words have power. And so if you're telling yourself, here we go again, you know, I'm such an idiot. Why did I go out so fast? You know, it's, this is going to be a disaster. You're, you know, you're not creating that reality, but you're nudging that reality a little bit closer. And so the first step is to become aware. And then you have to think about what should I be saying to myself at this stage? Halfway through the race, what are the words that I want to be in my head? I want them to be something like, you've done the training, you can do this. You've done the training, you can do this. And the truth is what you know under stress your your mental bandwidth is very narrow you're not going to be you know reciting shakespeare at that point you're going to have a few simple words in your head so you, if you can practice during training you can figure out what you want to say then during training practice when things get tough saying you've done the training you're ready for this you've done the training you're ready for this and you know maybe you have a different phrase that's going to come in that you want when you hit the 3 quarters mark of the race and if if you can make those changes i think it's powerful in terms of its potential for enhancing your performance, it's also going to make the experience more positive. And it's also something that I think is generalizable be far beyond running. That's great advice. I will certainly be doing that next time I actually get out and go for a run. <laughs> that and smiling. Make sure you're... That and make, smiling, make, yeah. Make, if, 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 worst case scenario, if you practice the smiling technique, you'll, you'll make some good friends out in the park. That was Alex Hutchinson talking about endurance and the limits of human performance. His book, Endure, is available now. In the April issue of BBC's Focus magazine, which is on sale now, we search for exoplanets by taking a look at Project Blue. This audacious plan has a single goal in mind, to photograph an exoplanet in the habitable zones of the nearest sun-like stars in the hope of finding a potentially habitable planet. Plus, you can find out more about real-life Robocops, how freezing patients could help save their lives, and how geoengineering could start a climate war.
Did you enjoy this podcast? If you liked what you heard, why not subscribe and leave us a review? You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Acast, and many of your favourite podcast apps. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.